This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Would you want a serial killer locked up in prison to get the COVID shot before you? Could happen. Older inmates in prisons in Washington State getting their vaccines. That means the Green River Killer could get his soon. We'll explore the debates about vaccinating felons and if it should be done ahead of everybody who never committed a crime. We'll look into vaccine equity as white people are getting vaccinated at higher rates than minority groups. Data from Israel shows maybe just one shot is enough to do the job. Businesses are coming up with creative ways to nudge their workers toward getting a vaccine shot. But we start with the serial killer and other bad guys that might get a vaccine before we do. Dr. Lauren Brinkley-Rubenstein, co-founder and lead co-investigator at the COVID Prison Project at the University of North Carolina. So, doctor, a lot of people sitting out there, they can't get their shots. They're going, how could this happen? You know, the important thing here is that, one, we have a situation of scarcity in this country, um, you know, which makes us contemplate these questions of deservedness. But it's really important to take a step back and think about the public health framework that's important when we make decisions around who to vaccinate. And when we make those decisions, we use epidemiology. So when we look at the data, we look at where have most of the cases been, where have a lot of the deaths been, and where can we implement vaccine programs to have the biggest impact. And when we look at the data, we see that 90 of the 100 largest single site cluster outbreaks have been in prisons and jails across time, across the entire pandemic. So we really can't turn away from the fact that incarcerated people really ought to be prioritized in our response. And, um, you know, it's really important to think about both the individual benefit of vaccination and also the population health benefit. And so You know, we have a constitutional obligation in this country to take care of and to provide health care for people who are incarcerated. And when we don't do that, um, you know, we are showing deliberate indifference and it is a uh, violation of the Constitution that is considered cruel and unusual punishment. So regardless of the nature of the crime, we have to provide health care that is on par with that is that is the provided in the community. And, you know, when the community says we're prioritizing people who are 65 and over, we have to do the same for people who are incarcerated. I think that's just the sticking point, though, for people, you know, on the outside looking in going no 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 you should and eligibility based on age we get it but there should be some kind of factoring in somehow uh when it comes to the severity of the crime if my grandma can't get an appointment because she's not savvy on the internet but someone who's my grandma's age that's killed a bunch of people gets it it just still doesn't seem fair yeah um so i you know i think 95% of people who are incarcerated come home. You know, they aren't serial killers. They um, are incarcerated for things that could honestly be better served in the community, mental health issues, substance use issues. And so when we use this framing, you know, thinking about serial killers of which that is an extreme example, in some ways it really perpetuates the stigma of incarcerated people. And I want to talk just a minute about, um, you know, the population health benefits. So, you know, I understand that people in the community feel like they've been missed and that they should also be prioritized. But it is true that more vaccination in general equals better immunity for the population in general. And so when we're vaccinating people who are in settings where there's extreme risk of exposure, That means that the correctional officer who is interacting with that person, um, the medical staff who's interacting with that person, they 
don't have the exposure that they might otherwise have. And so it actually impacts community rates just as much as it would the rate of, you know, for incarcerated people. And so your grandma um, is going to be well served when we vaccinate people who are in high risk settings, because that means the risk of someone who's been exposed in those settings, bringing it back to the community where your grandma lives is lower. Well, you know, and and, and I guess what it comes down to, I mean, sure, look, uh, when we mention uh, Gary Ridgway, the serial killer, uh, yes, of course, he's not typical of the overall prison population. And and I think that that's the problem here is that uh, probably few people would begrudge uh, people who are in prison for nonviolent crimes, uh, that sort of thing, from being vaccinated because they haven't been, after all, sentenced to to death because they, I don't know, maybe held up a, a 7-Eleven or something. But I think that what really sticks in people's craw is that even if it's a singular example, and this case is a singular example of somebody who's a serial killer, uh, that it's really hard. You've got to admit that, doctor. It's really hard for people to get their, their heads wrapped around that, that um, when there is scarcity of vaccine, when people are, are being prioritized for a host of different reasons, that somebody who is a convicted, after all, serial killer is going to kind of get vaccinated. I, I, it's a hard sell, I have to admit. Yeah, no, I hear you. I mean, I think the, the major takeaway for me is that good public health policy, you know, really can't be predicated on the circumstances of one individual. We have to think about the population at large, both for the people who are incarcerated, people who work in those settings, and also the population at large. And when we bring deservedness into discussions of public health, and it really is a slippery slope around, uh, you know, like what what would be the best criteria? We have to think about data. We have to think about biggest impact. Um, and we also have a legal obligation to take care of people who are incarcerated, regardless of the nature of their crime. Dr. Lauren Brinkley Rubenstein, co-founder, co-lead investigator of the COVID Prison Project, Black people and Latinos in the U.S. falling behind when it comes to vaccinations. The CDC has racial and ethnic data for about half of the vaccine doses given. It finds just 5 percent have gone to African-Americans and 11 percent to Latinos. Politico did an analysis of the data suggests disadvantaged and underserved communities are being bypassed. With us is Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, an OBGYN and founder, president of the National Birth Equality Collaborative. So, doctor, this is a problem we're seeing all over the country. Unfortunately, it is. And um, sadly, the digital divide that we knew already existed is being highlighted. And the inequities around racism and classism are being highlighted by even the vaccine rollout. Um, This idea that you can post something online and that people have the capacity to make an appointment and check their emails. I don't know if you know a lot of folks who are marginalized, but they're not really sitting around waiting for email or about an appointment. Um, So you see uh, people who have the capacity to do that showing up in communities to take the appointments from New York to DC to on, you know, indigenous communities, um, reservations, right? Like there's a large ability for those who have resource to use their resource to take advantage of this moment. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about some of the outrageous cases of the vaccine tourism, people crossing state lines and all that kind of stuff. But even just in a community or right down the street, you know, 20 minutes to whatever side of town that maybe you wouldn't go to normally, if you're sitting on your laptop all day, and I think we know the people who are getting appointments are people who have been refreshing every morning and every evening, right? And they're going to pick whatever Safeway or Vons or or whatever market, whatever clinic is giving them, because it doesn't matter that they're going to try and get that vaccine. But that doesn't mean it's equitable for everybody. 
Yeah. And that's what we know when you have a real public health strategy um, and not this kind of capitalism as the public health strategy, then you can do things like say, no, the goal of this was not to say who can sit and refresh their browser. But really, we know that people who are in these communities are using things like food banks and they're also having people doing home health care. So how do we get to where people are instead of expecting them to have the capacity to refresh their browsers. So what is the solution? I I know that's a very simplistic question to try to get you to answer uh, (laughs) for a very complex problem, but but is there a simple solution perhaps? Well, I mean, one of the simple, it's not simple, uh, it is complex, but us agreeing that we have to invest, I think the president, new President Biden and Harris, they are buying 200 million doses and that will allow for the public health infrastructure to give the vaccine out. Right now, we're kind of dependent upon private industry, which means you get the kind of things that we have right now. So investing in public health care is something we haven't done for generations. So this is not a new crisis, unfortunately. As a person who ran a public health department, I could tell you that you're always undervalued, under, always underfunded until there's a crisis like Hurricane Katrina or a pandemic. Um, and so this is an opportunity now for us to invest in public health care to get the resources to the people who are the most you know, L.A. just started some of the, the mobile clinics. They'll go yep. out into the community. They'll knock on doors and they'll keep a list of people and say, OK, we'll be back here in three weeks time. There, there seems like there should be a lot more of that. Exactly. And that just that costs money, though. And that's why um, we hadn't really allocated the resources to do it that way. But that's what we're going to have to do to really get the people who need the virus. They're going to have to have mobile clinics, going to have to have um, the people who are doing contact tracing, really going out and, and giving out vaccines, getting in the communities, and then working with community leaders, people who have been historically not centered, they don't trust the hospital or the pharmacy. Um, they have reasons not to trust that, um, but they do have trusted members of their community that they value or, or providers that they value. And so working with those providers to get access to the vaccine. But you know what's really, I think, disturbing is that I remember uh, weeks ago, you know, before the vaccines became widely available, there was a lot of discussion about how we have to be careful so that we don't, uh, you know, cut out uh, communities of color, that they don't end up uh, being given their, you know, the short end of the stick when it yeah. comes to the vaccine. So it wasn't like nobody knew that this was likely to happen, and yet it happened anyway. Yeah, and I, I would like to believe that we are the new day. I'm an optimist. So yes, we knew it was coming and no one was planning for it. But we also knew for the last, you know, since last March or since last February, since we've been dealing with the pandemic, that our response has been inadequate. So giving new the new leadership a chance to have their plan to move forward, um, it's going to be important. But yes, we knew it was coming. And this is just a continuation of not actually investing in all of the community and not investing in the people who are the most impacted, like people who are picking up our groceries, the people who are um, delivering our food, like all those folks um, eventually also will need to be vaccinated. And how are we going to handle that? Dr. Joya Creer-Perry, OBGYN, founder and president, National Birth Equality Collaborative. Doctor, thanks. Israel has apparently done the best so far with vaccinations, a greater percentage of its population receiving at least one dose than anywhere else. They rushed to give everybody the first dose without worrying too much about the second dose. New research shows that one shot might be enough when it comes to immunity levels. With us is Dr. Paul Hunter, University of East Anglia, Norwich Medical School in Britain. He studied Israel's one-shot approach to COVID. And uh, doctor, did the one shot do a trick? Well, um, it certainly appears that. Uh, I think we used data that was presented in a paper that um, a group in Israel originally published um, early last week and reanalyzed that on a daily basis. And what we found is that 
after the first shot, um, it was you uh, 14 days after the first shot, there was very little, if any, uh, benefit apparently of the vaccine. But over the following seven days, the effectiveness of the vaccine seemed to increase substantially till till round about day 21, um, they, uh, uh, the effectiveness was about 90%. So the suggestion is that, that a single uh, dose of the Pfizer vaccine does provide itself um, pretty good protection, but you do have to wait uh, till 21 days before you can be sure of that. Now, uh, the, with Pfizer anyway, 21 days is that sort of magic number when you're supposed to get the second yes. shot, which brings you over to this threshold of mm-hmm. 95% uh, yes. efficacy, right? So yes. so it, does the data then show that that second shot just increases it by 5% or is there some other benefit getting the second shot? No, no, well, uh, in the short term, that, that would appear to be the case, although I would say that the Israeli data, um, it's difficult to compare a, a properly conducted trial with a um, with a, 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 an analysis of real-world data like the Israelis were able to produce. The, um, but the main value of second shots, and it doesn't apply just to COVID, this is for m- most vaccines, is not to boost the immediate benefit, it's to actually ensure that the protection that you have lasts longer than it would do if you had a single single shot. There's also a theory that if you have COVID and you recovered and you've still got some antibodies and then you get one of the vaccines, that then your immunity is going to go even further. Could that Indeed. be some of these I people? Mean, that That's... Um, that may well be the case, but um, it, it, you know, with the data that was available, that's that's not uh, you, we couldn't um, uh, look for that. But you're quite right; it's not a theory that people. Um, ha- it's actual fact. We, there are papers now that looked at people who have had COVID and a single shot of uh, vaccine, and they respond as you would expect, actually, very well to to the single dose of vaccine, and they probably don't need a second dose. Um, but uh, be, you could spend a, waste a lot of time checking about um, who's, <laughs> who's had COVID, who hasn't, yeah. and have they really had it, and and that. So uh, it's be, it's easier to give everybody two doses uh, eventually. Is that unusual, by the way, when you're saying that with the Pfizer one shot from day one or day zero, I guess, through day fourteen, and it, it didn't have much of an impact at all. But then over the course of what, just seven days after that, it shoots up all the way to to potentially 90 percent. Is that an unusual thing? No, that's not that's not surprising. That's what you would sort of expect with most types of vaccine. And don't forget that the 14 days is um, is when you develop symptoms. So the reality is that probably people were getting infected about on average about five days earlier than that but certainly as a rule of thumb most vaccines don't provide much if any benefit uh, for about 10 days after their first injection and after that it sort of builds up now with with Pfizer because it's a with sorry with COVID because it's the uh, uh, a five-day incubation period you've got to add you know five days onto that and then you start seeing the benefit Dr. Paul Hunter, Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, University of East Anglia, Norwich Medical School in the UK. Coming up after this short break, would you get the vaccine if your boss offered you more money? Businesses want to get back to normal as soon as possible. Some 
are trying to encourage their workers to get the vaccine. That includes extra money, extra time off. Brian Weinthal is an employment attorney in Chicago. He talks to WBBM's Rob Hartz about the legal issues involved. So what we see happening here is a problem with regard to the response that employees may have. When it comes to vaccinating employees, we see two issues that may occur. The first is that employees who are incentivized to get vaccinated may say that they have a religious objection of some kind to receiving that vaccine. Alternatively, employees may say that they have a condition which ultimately could amount or arise to the level of a disability for which they can't get the vaccine. What the law says is what you give to one employee, you have to make available to others. So the risk factor here for many of these companies for people that can't get vaccinated, either on a religious basis or a disability basis, is that they say they're being discriminated against because they simply can't take advantage of the incentive that you're providing. The EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, for that very reason, has come out with guidance saying that if you're going to offer an incentive, it should be de minimis. And the one that they offer as an example is either a water bottle or a gift card of nominal value. But clearly, these companies are going beyond that to offer more and could run into problems for doing so. And then what about, uh, this is step two down the road, but as we talk about uh, the, as you know, schools are debating you know, the return of in-person learning, uh, what about the return of in-person business? All the people who have had those you know, home offices and have been conducting business via Zoom calls, if their employer says, okay, it's back to the office, but the only way you come back into the building is if you have a proof of vaccination, what's the legal issue there? They're going to run into similar problems. If you're an employer that mandates a vaccine, you're naturally going to have people who offer up those same objections. Either I have a religious basis for which I can't get it, or alternatively, I have a potential disability that literally doesn't allow me to get the vaccine. In both of those cases, employers are going to have to figure out a workaround for that because both are legal and valid objections under the law. So if employers put a mandate in place, they're going to have to have a system whereby they engage with employees to get around the two prominent legal objections we expect to see from people who just can't get vaccinated for one reason or the other. And then very quickly, how does that differ, though, from schools requiring kids to have the full range of vaccinations before you know, they can start preschool or first grade? There isn't a significant amount of difference. And what's important to keep in mind, Rob, is mandatory vaccination in certain contexts isn't something new. For example, we see in the medical community for many, many years, various institutions requiring doctors or people on the front lines to get vaccinated against various different things that they need to protect. They need to be protected against in their jobs. Schools are very similar to that. So there have been examples of mandatory vaccination that goes on in our society. It's just that with the prevalence of COVID-19, now the average regular everyday businesses that are getting back to work are going to have to confront the same problems that schools and medical institutions institutions have been confronting for many years in terms of whether or not to mandate vaccines or not to get back to work. Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Brian Weinthal, an employment attorney with Burke, Warren, McKay, and Saratella. Unless you've been on Mars or the moon for the past year, you know about the pandemic. You can't escape it even if you don't watch TV or read much of anything. The only way to have avoided its impact directly is to have been asleep this whole time. Well, that's what happened to a young man in England. He was hit by a car on March 1st of last year. That's when there were just 23 cases of COVID in the country and nothing was locked down yet. Well, the man went into a coma and just recently woke up from it, had no idea 
about how 2020 ended up shaking out. His family has to explain it all to him. Oh, and the man even got COVID while in the coma. Poor guy. You think maybe he said, just give me a few more months? Yeah, wow. I'll come back in August. He's in a coma and then he gets COVID too. <sighs> All right, this has been Coronavirus Daily. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Stitcher.